if my actions have split off from who I know God to be and who I know myself to be, then I'm not going to recognize myself or I'm not going to recognize God. And when we don't recognize ourselves, we can't write. You know, the writing can be uh, the process of coming to remember, though. Like, it wasn't like I was doing the remembering and the recognizing, and then I would write it out. But the practice that revealed the memory. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Writers Amber and Seth Haynes are married to one another. They've each written and published books of their own, but now they've written a book together. That book is The Deep Down Things, Practices for Growing Hope in Times of Despair. I was delighted to sit down and talk with them about Gerard Manley Hopkins, writing in partnership, marriage, and recognition, among other things. Amber Haynes, Seth Haynes, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast to talk about your new book, The Deep Down Things, Practices for Growing Hope in Times of Despair. Um, I love that phrase, the deep down things. Um, tell me about tell me about where that why you named this book The Deep Down Things. Well, so you I know that you know the Gerard Manley Hopkins poem, God's Grandeur. Of all the people, of all of the podcasts we've been on, Jonathan, I know you know this poem, which makes me delighted. Yeah. I love that poem. Um, you know, we we were really early on sort of trying to to think through how we wanted to tell the story that we told and what were the things that we wanted to kind of say and 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 particularly as it relates to despair, what are the things that that we can sort of hold on to in those despairing moments to find hope for Amber it was to find hope for me it was to hold out hope for her and we just kept coming back to this idea of of the sacramental things right when like everything around you feels like it's burning down what are the areas um where god's given us like very particular grace um and by engaging in that grace we can continue to hold on hope and and i was uh i got covid actually and i was reading um, this book called The Gospel According, According to Gerard Manley Hopkins. And so I went on this like deep, deep Hopkins kick. And Amber is a huge Hopkins fan. And I'm a huge Hopkins fan. Um, and as I was reading this book, uh, the author just was talking about that poem, God's Grandeur and the deep down things and, and how Hopkins like sort of saw everything in the world is imbued with uh, the deep down goodness and grace of of god that kind of holds all things together mm-hmm. um and the minute i just sort of read her interpretation of that poem i just thought like like that's it that's the thing that's it and so amber and i talked about it and um you know of course amber didn't uh bat an eyelash she said yeah that's the title 100 percent." and so we we moved forward that way and just kind of oriented the the essays in the book around around that idea yeah so this book is is a collection of essays, half by Amber, half by Seth. Um, and well, I, maybe I should start by asking you: just how, when people say, "What's this book about?" What do you say? How do you answer that question? I always say it's about despair, and Seth says it's about hope. <laughs> <laughs> so we've we've said that to many people. Uh, and it is. It's a, it's about both. And uh-huh. if you're a human, then you then you've experienced despair, or you will. 
yeah. not to discourage anyone, but <laughs> it's coming, you know? Yeah. And so how do we navigate that? Particularly when hope is not a thing that we feel. Like, how can you trust that it's um, really, I mean, we don't say this in the book. We don't outright say hope is a person. Hope is the Holy Trinity. We don't outright say that. Mm-hmm. But how, how do you participate with hope? Mm-hmm. You know, and and then maybe it'll come about as a feeling. Yeah. So, Why don't you say in the book that hope is a person? I don't know why we didn't do that. I think that we, um, I think we show it. We don't tell it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's, uh, that's the truth of it. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, I hear you. I, I I agree that you that you show it. Um, so thank you for showing it, by the way. Um, okay, so draw this connection for me between um, the deep down things and despair and hope. The the deep down things, truly, the way I'm looking at it is, well, how can we acquire a set of sacramental lenses? How can we begin to see the world with sacramental eyes mm-hmm. and see that everything is a window to a deeper, deeper thing? And Hopkins, he understood it. He wrote it into everything, every single little dappled thing the way the light landed anywhere you know that was that was a window into god's grandeur yeah and it's really hard to let despair win the day when you're all of a sudden like god's grandeur you know yeah it's waiting to wink out that's right yeah, like, like this. Was it shining from shook foil? Is, it, is that the same poem with the shining from shook foil? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. You know, Jonathan, what's um, there, th- not, I know that I'm supposed to be promoting the deep down things, not the gospel according to Gerard Manley Hopkins, but I recommend everybody go buy that book. It's such yeah. a good book. And there's this story, and I, I do think it was in that book. There's a story that, and, and others have, have told this story before too, but um, that when Hopkins was younger, he took his his brothers out into the forest and he um, didn't just point at the flower and say, hey, there's uh, the beauty of God in the land of the living. Like there's something that God created that's very beautiful. Um, instead, he he told them to take it and eat it, which I, I got to think is part uh, philosophical and, and theological and part just a brother being yeah, a jerk, right. you know, like yeah. eat, the, eat the flower. But he believed that nature was so imbued with God that even in those like darker moments of despair, if you really, really looked, if you had those sacramental eyes, if you looked, you could say, even still God is here. Mm-hmm. Um, and his life was a real testament to that. You know, um, I think it's really easy to call him a, you know, a, a master poet now looking back on it. But, you know, he died not knowing that anybody gave a rip about his work. I mean, mm-hmm. he died not knowing, what, you know, whether anybody would ever read him again. His first poems were completely overlooked. Um, you know, he was in a monastery. He tried to be a teacher. He wasn't a particularly good teacher. Um, students didn't really like him. Um, and so he kind of had this this life that was really full of despair. Like, I'm not good mm-hmm. at anything. Nobody likes my stuff. And yet somehow... He continued on with the belief um, that there was an ultimate hope. And and so I think there's no better icon 
of hope than Hopkins. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You said his um, calling was to transpose the, Im- the energy of God onto the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, you, you, as you said, that's the ultimate deep down thing for Hopkins. Um, and then it's what you just said. He did this in spite of this serious ambivalence and you know, people who, mm-hmm. it, well, I mean, even his his joining the Catholic priesthood was in opposition mm-hmm. to his family, and I don't know how actively opposed they were, but they were Anglicans in any case. Um, mm-hmm. And no, as you said, nobody read his poems, and yet he he pursued that calling anyway. Uh, yeah, and and just I mean, not to play too much inside baseball here, but I think three writers on a podcast. How can we not talk a little bit about it? Um. You know, being a writer is hard, and there's no guarantee that our work is going to survive us. There's no guarantee that anybody's going. To, there's no. There's no guarantee that anybody's going to read the book we just put out, or sure. our next book, or your next book, or or whatever. And and so there has to be a deeper hope than the vocation of being a writer. There has to be a deeper hope that somehow something that somebody you know that we put on a page. Um, meet somebody where they are and, and, and provides them with a little hope. And, mm-hmm. and again, man, like what a, what a mentor in that, that craft um, that we have in Hopkins. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you and I were just saying before we started recording, but the loneliest day for a writer is release day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you put this thing in the world that has meant so much to you and realize the world's interested in other things. This world, you know, the world that you made this thing for is, they're trying to get breakfast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You hope. I mean, when you write a book about really relating to people in their humanity as it regards despair, there's a part of you that's like, well, I hope you don't need this book. Well, that's <laughs> you know, like yeah. I'm not, I'm not like, oh, I hope you're in a bad place. I need to read this. Yeah. Uh, it's it's hard to know what to say. And it's also in the midst of, you know, Israel and Gaza. It's yeah. it, it can, so much can feel so silly. But as I read it, as I go back to it, and as we have conversations in podcasts, I know that we, in our own way, were a conduit, you know, mm-hmm. for art and for God. I mean, yeah. I hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't remember which one of you it is. It, who writes about the idea of noticing all the places where God shows his love and then going to those places. Um, and that being a way of, of acknowledging that even in a world where things are dark, there's light. Um, and Amber, I'd love to hear you. I, I love the way you talk about your garden, Amber, you know, a, a place where, um, where God shows divine love to you um and you talk about the gothic middle which i it took me it took me a while in that chapter to understand even what you were talking about by the by the gothic m- middle um but <clears throat> i love that that um that phrasing you said there's no way to count the deep down things in a garden all the tiny lives and deaths and true beauties that connect us with god uh i'd love to hear you talk about your garden and how that's a source of hope I just last night, right before it got cold, I went out and, and got all my tomatoes and peppers and basil before before the the freezing temperatures came. Yes, 
Yes, it was a mad rush for yeah. all the green tomatoes and all the hidden peppers. And yeah. I, I had zucchini. I rescued zucchini. Really? Just yesterday. Wow. And um, I, in all that, I discovered mounds of sweet potatoes with sweet potatoes down in there as big as my noggin. Mm-hmm. And it is just, I think, that sense of discovery for me and like really like live action kind of like everything is you can forget about a garden which i have done in this one i mean we were building a house and i just sort of you know threw a bunch of stuff out there and said i hope for the best and (laughs) walk off and i I mostly grew johnson grass which is a weed Mm -hmm. a relentless weed (laughs) and um but in the middle of all this you have to like part the johnson grass Mm -hmm. or clip it out and then i have all these dahlias and every single day, a whole new dahlia is popping up and it's perfect. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is sacred geometry perfection. And so I I can cry at a dahlia. And so that's who you're talking to. And <laughs> um, But I also love, I mean, what I mean by the Gothic middle is that as much as there is this life and this beauty, there is also just complete disaster, disease, and death and the killing of little critters so that your plants can live. Yeah. And so seeing that a, a, a whole a healthy garden is just as full of death as it is life. Hmm. One can't exist without the other. Life literally cannot exist without death. And and one of the things that I write in there that I think is funny is that that's the bad news for vegans. Yeah. <laughs> because there's not a piece of lettuce that has ever lived that a critter didn't have to die, didn't have mm. to get off of it and die. Yeah. And so, it, you know, for us who are not vegans, we eat meat, you know, that that is that is a death Yeah. so that we can live. And so it is just endless endless metaphor and so as someone who um has a degree in poetry that's kind of what i'm interested in yeah. <laughs> yeah um oh shoot there was something you said in there that i thought was was so funny but now it's never mind it's it's not gonna it's not gonna come back um well one thing you say amber in, in the introduction or the i guess it's the letter to the reader you say most of the time spent writing creative nonfiction isn't in the writing isn't in the writing at all it's in living the story and i love that insight you know we think of writing as something that happens between that starts between a person's ears and then moves out from there and that's really not how good writing works no that's not the floor is now open for that wasn't a question i realized but I mean, that's just the truth. I don't know how to pull stuff out of my noggin out of nowhere. I've tried. I've tried to write fiction. Um, I'm I'm just not, I'm not that girl. Um, it's all in what I'm living. A lot of times the way my brain works, though, is that when I'm going about my living and in my conversations, I'm describing the scenario to myself constantly. So I write, I, I'm constantly describing every scene that I'm in or um, a person's character, I'm like, mm-hmm. they're like listing off generosity or 
um, the way the light hits their hair. I'm, I'm, I describe it. And so I think that's part of what I carry to the table with me when I'm finally at my desk and when I finally, you know, settle down, which can take me forever. Mm-hmm. I, I actually way prefer the living of writing than the writing of writing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Do you, um, are you, when you say you're you're framing these these images and words, are you writing them down every day or are you just sort of practicing I, uh, in, in your head? For the most part, when I was younger, I was writing them down every day. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have four sons and three of them are, I have 16, 17 and 19 year old and then a 12 year old. So I'm, uh, I'm not sitting down to describe things. No, yeah. very, very um, rarely, but the practice has picked back up. It's actually interesting that the writing the deep down things was a fulfillment of a contract that I signed, I think in 2014, mm-hmm. in a long time. So there's been a way that writing this book has been um, a thing that I had to do. And yeah. I never would have guessed that writing about despair and how to participate with hope to make it would be the topic of my book. I would mm. never have chosen that out of nowhere. Yeah. But it was the life that we lived. Yeah. That so that's what I had to write. But now that the book is out, I have found myself kind of released in a way to just start practicing a little bit more like Hopkins did and to put you know the power of god on the page yeah you got that monkey off your back yeah it did it did so are you telling me you were like happy when you signed the contract in 2014 and then in the intervening nine years you went through this valley and and it changed everything that you thought you were going to write about whenever you imagine (laughs) imagine it can happen in nine years right that's right that's right um, I want to talk about your writing and partnership. It's a husband and a wife writing a book. Uh, not all husbands and wives could write books together. I mean, not just because not all husbands and wives are inclined to write books, but also there are other challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, there were challenges. Would you be willing to talk there, about yeah. those challenges? Yeah, there were certainly challenges. Um because Amber's writing style is wrong and mine is oh, right. Okay. And, and, um, and, and if you had asked her, she would say the opposite. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I have the privilege to, 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 to work a little bit in writing spaces with, with various authors and, and over the years, my own books, but also with others, I, I write a very, very particular way. And, um, I'm a firm believer in pushing forward um, through the work with the the rough drafts, pulling out as much you know insanity and art as you can in the first draft, but um, but then stepping back from an essay or stepping back from a chapter and saying like, okay, what is the raw material that I have here, mm-hmm. and then going back through and figuring out, okay, where can I foreshadow the end, where can I pull, you know particular artistic elements in what needs to cut, what needs to stay. Um, I've always written that way. I've written that way since I was a child, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Amber is quite a different writer. So she likes to put a paragraph down on the page and then hone the crap out of that paragraph until yeah. it really sings to her and then move on to the next paragraph and uh-huh. the next paragraph and the next paragraph. 
And so even in the writing, um, there would be times when I would give her a rough because she's throughout the book, she's, it's kind of a call and response. So I write the first chapter and then she's responding. And then she would, she would come back as she was writing forward and say, are you really going to, you know, blah, blah. I'm like, no, no, this is a, this is a draft, like respond to the draft. And then we can go back and sort of craft it. And, um, and it, it, there were, there were times when it definitely uh, caused some despair. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I have a hard time moving forward. If, if I don't know that the foundation that I'm writing on, if I don't know what it is, because I'm referencing back to something that's solid. Mm-hmm. And so for me to move forward after one of Seth's essays, because they do build on each other, there are their mm-hmm. own essays, but, um, and I would be like, how can you walk around with your, this essay like this? Yeah. What if a bus hit you? It would make me crazy. <laughs> and then I would have a hard time knowing where I was going to go. And so it was, it, it, there, it was just a lot of patience. And it was just revealing because I did have to start writing more like Seth. And the truth is, I actually think the way that Seth's process is the right way. That's, Anne Lamont tells us that's how we're supposed to do it. And Mm. so it's just not how I do it. Listen, the only way you can do it is the way you can do it. That's right. And whatever keeps the trend moving. That's right. And And I'll say this too, like, I think in some ways she, Amber moderated and, and sort of came more to the way I write and I moderated went more to the way that, that, that she wrote. I think we kind of met in the middle and, you know, we probably didn't hit our rhythm uh, until probably the fifth, fifth or sixth set of essays. Mm. Um, and, and so the, the rhythm for us, it came really slowly. And then when we got it, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot, it was a lot tighter, even the initial collaboration. And I will say like, we never, I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Amber, but I don't, we never really experienced like moments of real tension. I mean, there were like, I wish you would have done it this way, or maybe I, maybe you should do this, or have you thought about this? But there was never any real tension. Um, and I've, you know, I've written with a lot of people, and Amber's by far, hands down, my favorite person to write with. Thank I'm you. glad to hear it. Yes. Yeah, um, I, one thing you wrote about Amber was the, the fact that when you started, the, or I guess before you started this process, you you lost your voice, right? You you had gone through some really dark things and didn't feel like you could do this. And um, you you said you had to relearn how to write and also relearn how to read. And by the way, I feel like every time I start a new project, I'm having to relearn how to write. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You kept saying I can't, and kept Seth and Seth kept saying I know you can, and then you slow say so you slowly began to believe him, um, and I love that idea of two writers. In this case, two writers have to be married to one another. You know, one giving the other a little little courage to to go on. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's so important to you know we. In one sense, yes, writing is a solitary endeavor. You have to go in the cave, and do the work. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be somebody outside the cave too, <laughs> telling mm-hmm. you um, that they're that they're pulling for you and they believe in you. Um, so I, I loved reading about how your collaboration. Of, of course, there are unexpected difficulties, but I love that that. I don't know if it was a surprise or not, but it's beautiful to, to think about yeah. these two two people. One saying I can't, another saying you can. Yes. 
I, um, you know, I lost my voice, my, I didn't even know how I sounded in writing anymore. And actually when I did write, it was very, very straightforward and, mm-hmm. um, what I would have called not poetic. Mm-hmm. And, and I have, I don't know if that's just getting older too, mm-hmm. you know, it's a combination of things, but I didn't know how I sounded and I've always known my writing voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also an element of of my story where I had used my voice to ask for help in a very, very hard situation. Mm-hmm. And my voice didn't matter. What I was saying over and over again and asking for help with was dismissed. And so my voice didn't bring about the good that I needed, the help that I needed. Mm-hmm. And so there was a sense of my voice doesn't matter. Even if I can get something on the page, it doesn't matter. And so I think because Seth, we've been married for 24 years and a couple of days. And um, because I trust him and because he did hear my voice, mm-hmm. I don't think he ever lost sight of my voice. Um, he just he just knew with his whole self that I could do it. I mean, he really did. I don't think he doubted it. And so and I I even until I had written most of the book kept saying, I, I can't finish this. I can't mm. do this. It was very hard. Oh, OK. So this wasn't just before you started. And now he you got what you needed and you're ready to go. This is all the way through. No, it was very hard. And um, by the time I mean, truly, by the time we got to the end, I was like, oh, this is this is a good book. And I'm uh-huh. so glad we did this, but um, I can now hold this thing in my hand and say he believed when I didn't. And it, this is this is as close as we'll ever come to writing a marriage book. It's not a marriage book, but it's mm-hmm. a good picture of a marriage, I think. Um, and we've known so many people who one partner is in the depths. And the other person is left like, are they ever going to come back? Are they ever going to show back up to me? Or, you know, what what is happening? And there are some ways that I've I've just never, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be the same as I was before. Mm-hmm. I'm something new now. And, and Seth loves that too. <laughs> so it has just, it's been encouraging. And this book is a, is a proof for me of, I don't know, I think of, of our love for each other. Actually, I hadn't said that out loud, but it's been, it's actually really cool that we got to do that together. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love that idea that you're not who you used to be. And Seth loves the, the new Amber too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we talk to young couples about this all the time. Like the number of people that you're going to be in the course of a marriage, mm-hmm. like, listen, Amber married, a Baptist youth minister mm-hmm. who had no aspirations of being anything other than a minister um, and maybe a songwriter, but that was it. And um, now she's married to a Catholic writing attorney. Like yeah. you couldn't be any more <laughs> different. And, um, and, and, you know, it took a lot of different iterations of me uh, to get to where I am, you know, including a, a really dark season where I struggled with alcohol and, mm-hmm. um, it, it took a dark season, um, with one of our kids, uh, in, in the health, health scares and issues. And, 
Um, it took Amber going from, you know, being in this marvelous poetry program to dropping out to take care of children and being a stay at home mom, you know, and, and so the number of people that you're going to be in the way that you relate to each other over the course of a marriage just shifts and changes. And if you try to lock the other person into that image of, of who you married or who you want them to be, um, man, that's a recipe for unmet expectations and anger and resentment. And, um, you know, there's a real beauty to the changing of everything, really. You know, there's a real beauty to the sunrises, but it also sets, you know, and, and, and that's kind of, I think now, now that we're in our forties, um, I think that's kind of how we feel about each other, you know, like we've changed a lot. We're going to change some more and that's okay. Like this is the ride we signed up for and we're really excited about it. We want to find the beauty in it. I mean, we say we're excited about it and we want to find the beauty in it. But I mean, with teenagers in the house, I just know they're about to slip out the door any minute and they're not coming back. Like, that's, how, yeah. that's how I feel. So I don't want to sound like we're like, I'm actually good at this um, because I want to strangle my life to death right now. I want to say, be still and stay like this for just a minute, please. Mm. Cause I, I'm so grateful for where we are. Yeah. Yeah. We're supposed to be talking about writing, y'all. Or this isn't this isn't Are we? That's okay. That's that's writing too. Yeah, it, yes, it is. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, we're that, living that, the story, man. <clears throat> that's right. You're uh most of the time spent writing creative nonfiction isn't in the writing at all, it's in living the story. That's yeah. what Amber said. So yeah. Coming back to it. Um, okay. Uh before we run out of time, I know we're not Oh, we're not super close, but I want to make sure we've talked about this idea of recognizing. You've already talked to Amber about there was a you reached a point where you couldn't hear your own voice. You didn't trust mm-hmm. your voice. Another way of saying that is you didn't recognize yourself. And there are uh, there's a sizable part of this, you know, a chapter in this book or an essay about this idea of of recognition. Um and the idea that knowledge in many ways is remembering right it's 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 that word recognition contains both doing again and knowing this is it's about knowing again and um i thought that was really helpful a really helpful way to think about um a lot of things our work our work is people do creative work right that, that originality isn't just a creativity is just a matter of doing something nobody's ever done before but rather coming back to something that's been true before. Um, I'd love to hear y'all talk about why you ended up talking about recognition for a few pages in this book. So uh, in that essay, I led with that essay, which was really awkward because I led with that essay and I talked a little bit about Amber's Amber's story, Mm -hmm. um, which I'll let her, her share her initial sort of faith, story. But for years and years and years, as Amber's told that story, she's used the same word over and over again, um, which was recognize, 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 recognize. And what it means to go from a lack of recognition to a recognition of who you are, of who God is, of of the truth in the world around you, or the beauty in the world around you, whatever the thing is. Um, 
And there's so much about, you know, the writing life is, is that it's noticing, it's recognizing, it's seeing, it's observing. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, 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 I believe, I truly believe that every act of writing is a, is an act of spiritual formation. I don't care who you are, what you're writing, uh, what the medium is, um, who the audience is like every act of writing is an act of spiritual formation. And, that really sums up what it means to have really well-formed writing and really a really well-formed soul too, is just, is just saying, I'm going to stop. I'm going to recognize, I'm going to notice. And then I'm going to write that on the page in a way that, um, that hopefully says something true and good and beautiful about who I am and who God is and how he's met us. Yeah. My my faith journey actually started the well I guess when I was born but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, the day I came to faith was a day that I walked past a mirror and didn't recognize myself in the mirror and so um, that was the day that I um, had an experience with Jesus and. Um, and slowly came to recognize myself as as I came to know who God is and that God loves me. Um, I think in this really hard season where things fell apart and really COVID kind of simultaneously hit. So a strange season for the whole world. You know, it was in the air. Mm-hmm. We are doing what we're used to doing. The things that make us us, mm-hmm. we, we aren't that anymore. So there's this like loss of identity Um, and also, you know, the context like of the faith too is so many people are walking away because they don't recognize Jesus at church anymore. Mm -hmm. So there's a, that's just the whole, like our culture is uh, detached from, is detaching from a lot of things that we used to be attached to. Um, but there's that verse in James, um, and this is what I kept thinking about, um, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a mirror, for he beholdeth himself and goeth away and straightway forget what manner of man he was. And so um, I, I've been contemplating that. I still contemplate. Um what does it mean to know myself and what does it mean to know God? And a whole lot of that has to do, it has to do, it has to have to do. I don't know. What am I trying to say <laughs> with um, are my actions and is my life or is my doing aligning with what I believe? Mm-hmm. And if my actions have split off from who I know God to be, and who I know myself to be, then I'm not going to recognize myself or I'm not going to recognize God. And when we don't recognize ourselves, we can't write. You know, the writing can be uh, the process of coming to remember, though. Mm -hmm. So I think that a lot of times, well, for me, at least the writing, like it wasn't like I was doing the remembering and the recognizing, and then I would write it out. Okay. Yeah. The practice that revealed the memory. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So 
y'all, y'all sounds like you're saying two different things. So I'm going to give you a chance to, to reconcile, explain how you're not being self-contradictory. Okay. Y'all are talking about all these changes that you've been through in your life, right? From Baptist youth minister to Catholic uh, lawyer writer, for instance. Um, uh, what's a, what's the connection between change and recognition? Because recognition is looking back, or is it? Yeah, I think it is. I don't see any contradiction in it because as I look back on my own journey, the question that I have over and over and over again is who held me? Who had me? Mm-hmm. Um, who did I belong to? And various parts of my identity have changed. Various things have changed. Occupations have changed. The place I go to stand, you know, sit, kneel, whatever has changed. But the fact that God has always been with me in the quiet spaces and that he's always said, Hey man, like I love you and I've got you. And, um, you know, we're in this together and you can find me out in the world, and the beautiful things like that has not changed. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think for, for me, there's a lot of the recognition of who God was in my early days, you know, er, early on, Jonathan, I, this is, I said this the other day and I felt really weird about saying it, but it's kind of true. Um, when I was growing up, my biblical formation was in the Baptist church. And I, I love that. I don't hold anything, um, but love for that. Um, learned the scriptures there, uh, came to love the scriptures there, but I went to Catholic school. This is fourth grade. Uh, and in the quietness of the sanctuary, in the movements of the mass, in the raising of the host, in the sacramentality, like I actually felt what the scriptures describe, right? Those are two different things. Mm-hmm. But when you're in fifth grade, sixth grade, early 20s, you kind of see those things and you look back on them and you're like, yeah, but man, I'm not supposed to be that. I'm supposed to be this Baptist mm-hmm. kid or this evangelical kid, or I'm supposed mm-hmm. to be this, you know, you know, lawyer or economist or doctor or whatever. I'm supposed to be these things. But when you look back on your life and you say at the essence, who was I? Like, where did I meet God? Where did I see God? Where did I experience him? And you really recognize that, then mm-hmm. it's so much easier to shed all of these sort of categories that constrain you and say, no, like, I recognize who I am from my earliest days. I recognize where God met me. I recognize what he wants to do in my life. And I'm going to go to those places to find him. Uh, and and for, so, so for me, I don't, I don't know that those are contradictory parts of us change, but that like deep core part that we need to recognize in order to have communion with God. I don't think that ever changes. I hope that never changes. Um, it hasn't changed in my life. Yeah. yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah, I like the question, what remains? Yeah. There are a lot of things can burn down around us multiple times through our lives. But there's there's that, you know, I almost feel cliche talking about like our inner child or whatever, but that that little amber (laughs) that little amber that first loved to try to write some poems as a kiddo and that noticed nature and obsessed over rocks. Um that's that's what remains yeah. and that's what you recognize that's, that's, that's the recognize. self you recognize and and that is when i the most recognize god mm-hmm. it remains yeah everything else fades away yeah we there there are so many accidentals that we think are our identity and then you realize oh 
Turns out that's not my identity. Mm-hmm. My identity is something else, and I don't need to to uh, invest too much in these these accidentals. Which mm-hmm. you know, as y'all change, maybe you're moving toward a self that you re- that you do remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's true. And I think some of those accidentals, man, like to me, some of those accidentals are true accidentals. Hmm. Like I was born in the Baptist church. I didn't choose the Baptist church. I was born there. Um, But some of those accidentals are also still not your identity, but they're, but they're part of of who you are. They're like your talents, your gifts. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you, you weren't placed as a writer right? Like, no, your parents didn't raise you and say, okay, now you're a writer. <laughs> that's that's um, true. Yeah. Yeah. That was just like in you, that was who you sure. were. And and that is an accidental. It's not the whole of your identity, sure. but it's a, it's a gift and it's a talent. And it's something that you, you use and you use it really well. Um, and so I think that there, there is a lot of value in looking back and saying, what are the things that are truly like burned downable to use Amber's phrase? Yeah. What are the parts that God gave me that are who I am and how I experience him. And then where are the places that I I'm, you know, most in tune with God and the things that hopefully aren't ever going to change. And, um, and how do you recognize the distinction between those things and live into those things? Mm. Yeah. And that's also, as you identify those things, that gives you an idea of what you have to give to the world as a person who Mm -hmm. does creative work or any other kind of work for that matter. Right. That's 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 how you can tell a truer story than the one you're hearing. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a um, I've been talking uh, lately with a, he's creative, but but his creativity is actually bent towards understanding uh, coding mm-hmm. algorithms, mm-hmm. Um, all kinds of really nerdy stuff that I suck at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look at him and I'm like, man, this is this is actually part of who you are, and it's a beautiful gift to the world to use that that creatively you didn't choose that you weren't born yeah. into this mm-hmm. like it's part of your artistic gifting to understand this and to use this in ways that bless people and and that's every bit as artistic as anything you know amber or i or you will ever do you know yeah absolutely yeah i love it okay we're we're running we're, we're about to run into the our uh, time limit here so i got to ask you all i want to hear the answer to your question you can't say gerard manley, manley hopkins no actually you can uh, who are the writers who make you want to write? You mm. feel free to talk about Gerard Manley Hopkins, but you have to talk about some other people too. Does everybody say Annie Dillard? No. Some people don't. Some people don't, but most do. <laughs> <laughs> no, Annie Dillard is is a perfectly legitimate answer. But you have to exp- but you have to help listeners understand. I mean, that's a lot of detail, right? Any to any dealer, that's a lot to to slog through. Yes, and people may think the same thing about my writing. I mean, I can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I will never get some of her images out of my head. I will never I can I can smell her writing. Name one, and, name an image that you can't get out of your head from Annie Dillard. Bloody cat paws on a bed top. Muddy uh, cat paw? Bloody. 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 Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Just a sweet little kitty cat who came in after having a little lunch. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, the the image of a moth to a flame. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, that one's, 
well, I, after hearing the way you talk about your garden, I understand why you like these images. That's right. A moth burning itself to death and uh, gothic. <laughs> a cat that's red in tooth and claw. That's right. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, I think, yeah. man, um, this is like asking which is your favorite kid. Uh, who, who's your favorite? Who's your favorite kid? Um, man, I love so many, so many people. I, I think who makes me want to be a writer? That's the question, right? Who That's the make, question. Makes me want to be a writer. I, there, so I don't know how much David Mitchell you've read. Um, I have three answers to this. David Mitchell is a novelist. He's a Brit. Um, his characters are so real, but he also has this like really uh, surreal, almost like sci-fi type of uh, huh. theme that sort of runs through all his novels. And okay. he's created this, this what well, people have dubbed what he's created, the Mitchellverse. So all his characters kind of pop up in different places. Hmm. And um, he is the kind of writer that has, that puts so much weight in character that I, I just, like, I don't know that I could ever do that. And it's just yeah. a beautiful thing to watch. And it's not, the language isn't necessarily really beautiful. But, um, Anthony, how could you not read Anthony Dora and not want to be a writer? Um, yeah. uh, you know, All the Light We Cannot See was an amazing book, but yeah. his last book, Cloud Cuckoo, made me cry in places. Yeah. Um, it's like his ode to books. And then I think on the poetry, um, front in particular but also as a memoir it's like how can you not love mary carr um, oh yeah the images in her poetry are amazing and to think that you could take you know images like the image in viper run viper rum her poem and then like run them by you know through a 300 page memoir is just yeah it, it's it's insane yeah. uh her ability with language um, yes, so I, those are all modern writers. I guess I could go back and get some some classics, but those are the people today that like if they release something, I'm going to read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, y'all are Arkansans. Do you read uh, Charles Portis? No, no, but okay. I'm close to. <laughs> <laughs> all right, friends. Um, this has been so fun. Thank you. I, I love your book. I hope a lot of people read it. Thank you. And um, keep writing. Thank you. We will. Hey, you too. In the world. Okay. Sounds yeah. good. Let's do it. Let's 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 all write some more. Let's agree right here. Can we have a? I'll draft up a contract. Yeah, I'll send good, it good. to you. We'll all sign it. No, I'm I'm done with contracts until I actually have the manuscript written. <laughs> okay, that's right. smart. Hey, you know what? That's the best piece of advice I've heard on any podcast. <laughs> is don't sign the contract until you've written the manuscript. That's so good. That's the gold of this entire podcast. Yep. Glad to help. All right. See y'all yeah. later. Thanks, ma'am. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.